Morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Beautiful sunny day. Well, kind of on and off, right? My name is John Vandervald. I serve here as one of the pastors on staff. If you are a guest with us this morning, welcome to Glen Allen Bible Church. Glad you're here. We love guests. After the service, please make your way to the Welcome Center. There's a gift there. It's a book that uh, we have for you that explains who we are as a church. We'd love for you to pick up a copy of that. Uh, you're also welcome to head to the gym, have a donut, hang out with people in there, or if you'd like, come forward. I would love to get to know you um, just briefly this morning. I'll be down front after the service. A few years ago, I attended a funeral of a friend. His name was Dr. John Elson. Some of you in this room may know who he was. Dr. John was how most people referred to him. Dr. John was born in 1922. Graduated from Wheaton College in 1942, graduated from medical school in 1945, and immediately opened a private medical practice in Evanston. Now, you may be thinking, how did he do medical school in that short of a period of time? This was during the war. So apparently, they had abbreviated medical school during, during the war, and he graduated from medical school during that time, set up his own practice in Evanston, and was there until 1991. Many of those years, Dr. John served as an elder at Moody Church, right downtown Chicago. After retiring, John and his wife, Ginny, moved up to Three Lakes, Wisconsin. How many of you know where Three Lakes, Wisconsin is? All right. Three Lakes is the home of Honey Rock Camp, among other things, but it's well known because Honey Rock Camp is there. And for a number of years, I served as the program director at Honey Rock, and I got to know Dr. John and his wife, Ginny. Dr. John and Ginny had 10 biological children. They also had many other foster children uh, throughout their lives. When Dr. John died in 2016, he had 44 grandchildren and 56 great-grandchildren. John and Ginny were married for 71 years. Dr. John and Ginny would invite me over to their house fairly often. They would call me on their landline phone, which was their, in their tiny little house on the shores of Big Stone Lake. Sometimes I would turn down the invites thinking I had something better to do, but Looking back on it now, I wish I would have never said no. John and Ginny would invite me over for a baked good that had been made that morning, and then conversation about the latest Christian author or topic. I remember one time pulling into the driveway, and Dr. John was outside, and he said to me, Hey, have you ever heard of Francis Chan? He just wrote this book called Crazy Love. He was like 88 years old. Those conversations were full of laughter, prayer, and great spiritual conversation. As I sat at the funeral in 2016 and I listened to some of Dr. John's children and grandchildren speak about their dad and their grandpa, I was struck by what one of Dr. John's sons shared. He said, my dad was truly remarkable. In fact, my dad was extraordinary because for his entire life up until his death he was painfully ordinary 
What makes my dad extraordinary was his incredible, humble faithfulness every day of his life. He went on to talk about the daily routine his father would go through, reading his Bible each morning, praying each night with his wife, going to church every single Sunday. He had a schedule to call on his children and his grandchildren regularly to pray for and encourage them. He brought food to the food pantry on on the same day of the week. And they would open their home to foster kids, kids who needed a bed to sleep in. His son said, He was just humble and faithful. He did what was right, good, loving, and thoughtful each and every day. Day in and day out without falter. My dad was faithful. And it was his ordinary life for 94 years that made him so extraordinary. Jesus talks about faithfulness quite a bit in his ministry. The central theme of our passage this morning is faithfulness and our motivations around being faithful. So turn with me to Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 14 this morning. Jesus is going to tell us a parable to help us understand this concept of faithfulness and what it looks like for our lives, our lives of faith, and what our motivations for faithfulness should be. The scripture this morning is part of a longer teaching by Jesus with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Scholars call it the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus talks most specifically about the end times. He talks about this season of him ascending and leaving and going away, going to heaven, and then this period of waiting, and then this build-up period of his return, and then what it's going to be like after he returns. He covers many things in this discourse But one of the main topics is what is it supposed to be like or what will it be like or what are we supposed to do while we wait? While we wait for the return of Christ. There's some famous verses that take place uh, in this section of the text. Matthew 24 verses 42 and 44 say this, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So also, you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Kind of a famous verse or verses, right? That Christ is going to come back like a thief in the night. And here's a great way uh, to explain what Christ is talking about when he uses parables or his use of parables. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? That a parable means to go alongside. So a parable is a, a story or metaphor or some kind of analogy of, to help us understand the truth of the text. 
So when Christ says, me returning is going to be like when a thief comes in the night and you should have been prepared and ready for that to happen. Jesus is not saying, I am a thief who's going to come into your home at night. Does that make sense? He's using something that the people would understand. As we move into chapter 25, and Jesus is really dialing down on this concept of waiting, what we are called to be like as we wait. We call this waiting season the church age. Christ has left. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated with the Father. The disciples were left behind, and they established the church, reaching and evangelizing, and we are a part of that age now. We are in waiting for Christ to come. In the beginning of chapter 25, Jesus uses a parable to help us understand our posture in waiting. He says you are to be ready. Don't be surprised. There's this active part of our waiting posture. We're prepared, we're ready, and we're waiting, knowing that he is going to return. And then he goes on in verse 14 to talk a little bit more about what this season of waiting is going to be like. Verse 14, he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. So again, it. Well, again, Jesus is saying, I'm going to reinforce once again this teaching about what waiting is going to be like and what we are supposed to be like as we wait. And he says it's like a man going on a journey. Now again, just like Jesus isn't a thief in the night, he's using something to help us understand the central and the, the core truth of the text. So he uses this story. And the people would engage with, understand, and relate to this story. They would have an understanding of what it's like for someone to go on the journey. And I need to give you a little bit of a heads up this morning. Because the text before us uses two words that in our cultural situation have a lot of pain, baggage attached to them. The word master and slave. The Greek words that are used here for master is kyrios, and the Greek word used for slave is doulos. There's really no way to get around what Christ is saying. He is using the word master, and he is using the word slave. Now, in our NIV translation, they've used the word servant instead, which I think is a, a fair use of the word. But we need to talk culturally about this idea of master and slave because our understanding of master and slave comes from our American history of slavery which is horrific, violent, awful stuff. That's what master and slave has in our culture and our context. Now in the first century when Jesus is talking to his disciples that baggage was not there. It was not present. And so Christ may have used something, if he was speaking to us today, like boss and employee. But we need to be careful if we're going to just put boss and employee into the text, because that's not what the text actually says. Are you, are you tracking with me here? So we need to be careful when we do things like that. But that's more of the mindset that our modern understanding of, of what's going on here, which we can grasp. I don't know why Christ didn't say boss and employee. I can only 
think that it didn't have the same meaning and impact it had when he chose to use the words that he did. So slavery, master and slavery in the ancient context in this first century did not mean what it means when we think of our American history of master and slave. Are we tracking this morning? Okay, I want to be really clear though. That these weren't, we, the the servants that are being talked about here, the slaves being talked about here, they weren't choosing to be a part of the master's estate. Does that, are we okay here? They were there because the master had slaves. Now these, again, in in the ancient Near East, it's a different, these were, it was not racially bound. There were African slaves and Roman slaves Greek slaves, it was, it was your position economically and culturally and socially in the situation. And masters, in this context, when I say the word master, and I, I'm going to say it a few times as we go through the teaching this morning, would be set up more like a lord or a king. That's what kyrios is, this idea of lord and master and king. These are the terms that are being used. I just want to really recognize that there's some some potential thoughts that go on in our minds when we hear these words. So maybe I've said too much. Maybe I haven't said enough. I I hope that is helpful this morning. So let me finish. Let me continue with the text. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the man with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. When we hear long long time, most likely, The idea of going on a journey and coming back was probably several months, maybe a year. That's how most likely how long the master was gone. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. He said, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I had not sown and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, 
Even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some people have called this the parable of the talents. I think it's actually rightly uh, translated to bags of gold. And we got to be really clear, this is different than the parable of the talents that we have talked about in the book of Luke. So this is a different teaching that Jesus, but some of the words go back and forth. And the reason that people would use the word talent to talk about this parable is the Greek word that's used here is talenton. And there's been some argument about what a talenton actually is. If you have a fancy uh, study Bible in front of you, it might have a footnote that says something like 100 pounds of gold. Some scholars say it was more um, a way to explain the worth of wages. So in your Bible may have a little footnote that says something like 20 years of income. 6,000 denarii and how that would have been uh, played out. The definition of talenton, no matter which part of the scholarship you follow on the implications or the interpretation of the word talenton, it just means an incredible amount of money. This is a significant amount of money that a master has entrusted to slaves to servants. Significant, the value of what's being given. The use of the word talenton causes all sorts of confusion. Is this actual talents? Is this actual money? Is it our gifts? Is it the things I'm good at? Those kinds of talents? The plainest definition is that it is this immense value. We think about it in terms of weight of precious metals. In today's economy, we're talking about about $15 million worth of gold. This is the scale that we're talking about. $15 to $20 million of gold. And this is important because it describes to us the scale of the master's wealth. The extravagance of what the master has. The, the gloriousness of the master's kingdom. He wasn't just giving something small. He was giving something so immense. And then he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in the master's happiness. That just hits a little different when the small amount is $15 million worth of gold. I mean, what kind of kingdom is this master running? This Lord, what, how extravagant is this, this master's estate? These are unfathomable riches. People would have thought of this as, this is just an amazing king. And he's given this to his servants. But we know, church, right, that Jesus isn't simply talking about money, this, this value of gold. He isn't simply talking about a king and his servants. He's using this parable to go alongside and to teach something greater. He's giving us an illustration of what the kingdom of heaven is really like. So the point in the passage, the work with the word talenton is 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 not to 
to do anything but help us understand how extremely valuable the things that servants of the king have been entrusted with, how incredibly valuable they are, and the gloriousness of the king's kingdom. If the king represents in some fashion Jesus and his kingdom, then the servants represent us, the the servants to the king, the, the servants all here, the collective servants, the church, and us individually as servants to the king. The talent that we have been given is the stuff given to us by the master designed to multiply his kingdom, designed to expand his kingdom, to grow his estate. It's the stuff that we have been entrusted with and given. Is it money? Yes. Is it time? Yes. Is it the stuff you're good at? Yes. Is it the privileges you have in this life? Yes. Is it the home that you have earned and built? Yeah. It's your car? Yeah. It is everything that you have, the master has given you. Is it all of your life? Yes. Everything that you have that has been entrusted to you. That's a talenton given to you by the master. Every breath we breathe, Matt talked about it. The life we have, it's everything that we have been entrusted with from the king. Church, the master expects us, his servants, and the collective church to multiply his estate. That's what we are to do. He has poured on us undeserving slaves of the king. Incredible amounts of value and worth. And our call is to multiply it. Whatever the master has given you, whatever he has given us as a church, we invest it, we grow it. That's what we are to do. As we wait for the king, we work for the king. So what is that work? What is our job? It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. It's right here, clearly in the text. What does the king respond? My good and faithful servant. It's faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful to the king? What does it mean to multiply faithfully what he has given us? Well, we know what it isn't. It isn't doing nothing. It isn't taking what we have and burying it in the ground and doing nothing, saying, yeah, we're good. I'll just do my own thing. (laughs) Clearly, that's not it. So let's go back to the parable because I think Jesus is actually brilliant. I think he's brilliant in what he teaches here. Because what he's saying is in using the amount of wealth he's talking about, 
he's showing the people listening and he's, as he's talking about these servants, he, he knows that what it would take to multiply that amount of resources would be an incredible amount of intentionality for these people. These servants' lives would have completely changed to turn 15 million into 30 million. They can't even fathom what that would be like. We can't even fathom, in first service, I got all tangled up talking about how you would multiply money. I won't do that for you guys. I just know there was no stock market, there's no Bitcoin, there's no quick properties to flip. None of that exists in that first century context. I don't know even how to go about flipping 30, 50 to 30 million. Maybe some of you can do that overnight. Well, in the first century, these folks, they could not do that. What Jesus was saying in his brilliance was that these slaves, these servants' lives were completely changed. And now everything that they were to focus on, everything that they were to do, every single day was to think about what the master had given them and how they could multiply and increase it. That's what's going on. That these undeserving and unworthy servants now have an incredible job to do. And church, if they want to multiply this, it's going to take some intentionality. Every single day they wake up going, how do I multiply these assets? How do I expand the kingdom? How do I honor the king with what he's given me? Every single facet of their life would have been touched and turned to think about the kingdom of God. It meant regularly looking for opportunities. You can't simply just put it on with the bankers and it will just automatically turn over in a couple months. It's looking for all sorts of different opportunities. Well, maybe, maybe that's a way to expand it. Maybe that, how about that person? That, they don't know how. Every day looking for opportunities to advance the king's estate. It meant having relationships with others, leaning on others for, for counsel and how to do this work. It meant taking risks. It meant taking risks for the kingdom. Moves of faith, risky endeavors. It meant daily faithfulness to the master and to the kingdom. That's what faithfulness is, church. That's what Jesus is saying we are to do as we wait readily for his return. I think sometimes we think that the, the best servants, the hero servants, the heroes of the faith are these, these extravagant, these big public figures who seem to be making this incredible impact for the kingdom. They've got incredible followers on social media or they speak at the best conferences or their, their books are always at the bestseller list. They're always on the best podcasts. I think we, we think that service to the king is just showing up in these big ways, in these big moments. I think it's more like Dr. John. I think it's doing the right thing over and 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 over again. 
every single day. It's waking up and saying, how do I multiply the kingdom? What are the opportunities in front of me? It's not about me and growing my wealth and who I am as a person in this world. It's about the king and multiplying his kingdom. Let me give you an example from sports. I know some of you don't like sports. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You guys know who Steph Curry is? All right, Steph Curry is uh, a point guard, shooting guard for the Golden State Warriors, famous for his, what, three-point shots. Got the record, makes them all the time. Apparently hit a game winner last night against the Suns. It's pretty phenomenal. Did you know that Steph Curry shoots 500 shots a day? Sick, tired, game day, not game day, traveling, he shoots 500 shots a day. And he's done it since he was a teenager. So his whole adult life, 500 shots a day. Usually half of those are three-point shots. If we take just his 15-year career in the NBA, that's 2,520,000 shots in practice. In games... Steph Curry has taken 8,438 three-point shots. He's made 3,604. That was before last night. You see the scale? Guys, faithfulness is the 500 shots a day. Doing it every single day. It's not showing, just showing up and hitting the half-court three or whatever. It's not just this, the big moments. Think of your marriage Think of marriage. I, think of marriage. I can say I'm faithful to my wife because I've never cheated on her and I buy her something on her anniversary and take her out to dinner. That's a faithfulness. Every 20 years we go on a nice trip and I never see her and talk to her except for those big events. Do you think my wife would say he's faithful? Maybe in the, the most direct like Webster Dictionary definition. But faithfulness is every single day honoring my wife, thinking about my wife, making the coffee, doing whatever it is that, to honor and think of and focus on. Church, that is what faithfulness in the church Faithfulness as servants of the king looks like. It's not about the amount of production. It's about our daily practices, our daily work, making the most of every single opportunity he has given us as appropriate for our abilities. If it's five, you turn it into 10. If it's two, you turn it into four. If it's one, you turn it into two. All are celebrating with the king because of their goodness and their faithfulness to him. So what about motivation? There's a beautiful picture of the king saying, right, you've been faithful with a few things, so now I entrust you with more. Come and celebrate and be a part of my happiness. We know the scale at which we're working with here. So in our faithfulness, there's this incredible gift of joy and happiness and connection and fellowship with the king. 
All right, what about the third servant? I know you all are waiting. What do we do with the third servant? Well, the third servant, he didn't even try. He buried the money his master entrusted to him in the ground, and he returned it to the master completely untouched. His excuse for this was a combination of fear and contempt. He saw his master as harsh and unfair, and so he chose to literally do nothing with the gifts that he had been given, his resources. Now the master responds with anger. He he calls the servant immoral and lazy. The servant claimed to have been afraid of, of earning the master's wrath if he lost the money. And he describes the master as someone who takes advantage of poor people. He's a dishonest master, a bad master, immoral master. And the, the master's response to the third servant is one of logic. The master isn't, the king isn't admitting that he is like what that third servant described. He's saying, if you actually thought that, if you actually thought that, you would have at least given the money to the bank. So you, you and I have a very broken relationship, is what the king and saying to the third servant. You don't even know who I am. We have nothing going on. You don't know who I am. You don't know what my kingdom is like. You're afraid of me. You're not connected to me. His refusal to serve implies something very crucial about this relationship, about the person's relationship with the master. And there's some enormous consequences because of that relationship and his actions. I think the point of the inclusion of the third servant is to set a few things straight for us as we look through and think about this parable. I think, first of all, it shows us the seriousness of faithfulness. I think, secondly, it it shows us the truthfulness of who the master is and what he is really like, what King Jesus is really like. The third servant got it all wrong. His explanation and understanding of the master is a complete lie. There's a broken relationship. I think third, it shows us the motivation we are to have in serving the king in our work for the king. Here's the thing, church. We don't work out of fear for the master. Fear is not what motivates us. We have a right relationship with the master. We understand who the master truly is and what he has done for us dead to life. That's what the master has done for us, his servants. He's he's brought us from death to life through the blood of Christ. And so we don't respond in faithfulness out of fear. 
We respond out of the love that Christ has poured out on us. Church, it's our only appropriate response. It's to be faithful every single day, looking in the mirror when we wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord, I'm alive. What can I do for you and your kingdom today? Not because I want to earn anything from you, not because I'm terrified of you, but because I'm so thankful for what you've done for my life. That you've saved me. You've given me this purpose in life. Church, religion, religion motivates us by fear. Jesus motivates us through love. It's the love of Christ poured out on us. And it's our loving response to him to be faithful. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the brilliance of Christ and his teaching. I thank you that it has meaning and purpose thousands of years ago and meaning and purpose for us today. Lord, help us to be faithful. We want to honor you and glorify you with everything that we have our entire lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing together. There'll be folks down front who would love to pray with you. If you'd like prayer this morning, don't be shy. Come on down. Let uh, the Schobergs who will be up here, let them pray for you, encourage you in your faith.